you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Proverbs chapter 6. Continuing our reading through the book of Proverbs. We come this evening to Proverbs chapter 6, and we'll read verses 1 through 5. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. I'd like you to join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of this word. As the rain and the snow come down from the heavens and do not return void but bring forth seed for the sower and food for your creatures lord so we know your word goes forth it does not return void but accomplishes the very purposes for which you have sent it and so we ask lord that you would uh, bring about uh, that which you design uh, by the reading and the preaching of your word we pray that you would convict us of sin O lord that you would open our eyes more and more to the, to the truth of sin, to the lies that we have admitted into our heart, and to turn us from these things unto the Lord Jesus Christ, such that we live in the light of who he is, as the one who is the light, as the one who is the way and the truth. And pray that you would build us up in faith and hope and love as only you can, that you would attend your word with power, and that you would posture our hearts aright to receive it. How wonderful to know that each and every heart here is known perfectly by you, O Lord, and you alone can press your word home onto hearts, and you're pleased to use such weak servants to be instruments in this endeavor, uh, but we know that you are the one, O Lord. In Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, who alone can do these things. So we pray that you would be doing them, for we ask in Christ's name, amen. Continuing in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 47. First Exodus 20, verse 3, this is the word of the Lord, you shall have no other gods before me. Thus ends God's word. And question 47, what is forbidden in the first commandment? The first commandment forbiddeth the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. Amen. 
this is the last week in the first commandment, <laughs> and we're examining here what God forbids us to do, and the commandment itself is set as a prohibition. You shall not. Uh, you shall not have any other gods before me. The question explains that God forbids us denying him, treacherously withholding worship from him, or giving our worship to any other beside him. But I've been struck, and we made the observation last week, that by and large, we don't feel any great ache of conviction when we hear this commandment read. Is that fair to say? I can read the commandment, I shall have no other gods before me, and most of us will move on and go about our day without giving it much thought. But the fact is, we all break this commandment daily in thought, in word, and in deed. That's the good language of the Heidelberg Catechism. But I suspect on the whole, we're largely unaware of these things. I don't think anyone here is fostering the desire to have other gods. <laughs> and yet we do. And yet we feel no ache over it. And so there seems to be a disconnect. <laughs> we said that we break this first commandment last week in ways that are unexpected but seem to follow. So, for instance, we said we break this first commandment when we demand that God give us answers that he has not purposed to give us. We've all done that, haven't we? We begrudge God withholding certain things from us or subjecting us to certain things without the full-bodied explanation that we would demand. And we shake our little fists in his face and we break the first commandment. We said we're all relentlessly guilty of self-love. And perhaps more than anything else, in this way, we break God's first commandment. I want to continue this exploration to see these rather mundane and frequent ways in which we break this first commandment of having no other gods, being forbidden to have other gods. So Lord willing, we'll consider four more ways. First, we violate the first commandment when we use unlawful means to pursue lawful ends. We use unlawful means to pursue lawful ends. To use unlawful means is to pursue a good thing in a sinful way. To set out to obtain something good in a way that God has strictly forbidden. Have you seen the movie Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? Do you know this movie? Three of you do. That is unbelievable to me. <laughs> The story goes that these seven brothers desired to be married. It's a good thing. They wanted the good gift of marriage. And the way they went about obtaining this good thing was by kidnapping seven women. <laughs> a bad thing. <laughs> a sinful way. Now, there's a comedic and a lovely twist about it, but you get the idea. A good thing desired to be married, but taken in an unlawful way. And disaster ensues. Well, why is this a violation of the first commandment? Well, to pursue a good thing in a way that God forbids is to effectively give our worship to another. 
Our Lord actually makes this connection explicit in his own temptation. Matthew 4, 8 through 9. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now just think about this. Jesus is the king. All the kingdoms of the world belonging to Jesus is a good thing. <laughs> it's an excellent thing. Indeed, it's the thing for which he was sent. But to take them in this way, Christ Jesus says plainly, would have been to give his worship to another. In the simplest of terms, to pursue something in a forbidden way shows that we love and desire that thing over and above God. It says, well, so what if God says not to pursue it in this way? I'm more interested in getting the thing itself than I am in listening to God. But it also shows we don't trust him, doesn't it? We don't trust him as our God to give us every good thing in his good and fatherly timing. Because there's another really interesting element to our Lord's temptation in the wilderness. The Christ was promised all kingdoms. <laughs> That's what Psalm 2 says explicitly. The nations are your inheritance. The ends of the earth are your possession. So what the tempter was really saying is, you don't need to wait upon God. You don't need to submit to him. You don't need to walk the way of the cross. You can have them now and without agony. It's constant temptation, isn't it? You can have it now. You can be God. You don't have to submit yourself. You don't have to wait on his timing. You don't have to acknowledge at a basic level that you are not in control. And that your call is to yield obedience unto him. But what happens when we walk this way, when we pursue a, a good thing in a sinful way? Well, we can ask Abraham and Sarah. Can't we? God had promised them a good thing, a son. Consider that. A son, a child. Still we thrill at the prospect, let alone a barren woman and a, a man who was advanced in years, having had a child withheld from them all this time, and God promised it. They got tired of waiting, so Sarah takes Hagar. <laughs> all right, he promised it, let's take it. Let's just take it. Take Hagar, we'll do this ourselves. We don't have to wait on him. What happens? A mess. A mess ensues. Chaos in the home and larger difficulties beyond as the strife between Israel and the Ishmaelites would be an ongoing dynamic in the story of Israel. A real mess ensues. Well, they got their good thing, the child, but it was no longer just a good thing. It was a part of a new problem. That's what happens when man seeks to engineer in his own way a path to obtain what God has promised to give. And so the tempter continues to corrupt good gifts by tempting us to pursue good things by sinful ways. What are some ways that we do this? 
I'm sure if you're honest, you can think of some. It might take you a minute. I'll give you a minute. I won't give you the full minute. <laughs> Maybe you've sold something and were less than honest about its true condition as you sold it. Maybe you've been a little bit dishonest on your taxes, just a smidge. <laughs> to pursue wealth or gain dishonestly demonstrates we love money more than God. Maybe you're prone to bullying. You coerce, intimidate, manipulate others into doing what you want. That's will worship. You're willing to get your way, whatever the cost may be, even if it means cruelty. And it's usually to those to whom you owe the greatest debt of love. Maybe you're prone to fornication. You engage in sexual immorality to obtain sexual pleasure outside of God's good design of marriage. It's very common. It says, I love sexual pleasure. I love pleasure more than I'm interested in the true and living God. It goes on and on and on and on. And all of it demonstrates that we don't trust him. That we're prone to love things more than him. And the sad fact is, we're guilty of this all the time. And it's really just a belief in that old lie, isn't it? God will always be withholding something wonderful from you. That's who he is. He's miserly. He's stingy. That was a lie from the beginning, wasn't it? He's withholding, he's withholding, he's withholding. And the only way you're going to get it is by transgressing. You've got to take it. You've got to make your own way. And that's how you live. We succumb to this pretty consistently. We break the first commandment. Christ didn't. His whole life from the beginning you're the son of God, do this. Son of God, do this. Son of God, do this. There's an easier way. The end of his life, surrounded by mobs of deranged sinners. If you're the son of God, come down. The last temptation. He persisted. <laughs> he endured he yielded himself in perfect worship to his father, submitting to whatever the father had designed for him, even though it was a cup that was dreadful beyond description. He received a good thing by walking in the good way, even though that way was through the cross. Marvel at our king. There's another subtler way in which we displaced our trust from the true and living God and thus deny him. So second, we deny our God by trusting in lawful means. By trusting in lawful means. Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, 
whose heart turns away from the Lord. This was constantly the temptation of Israel. Making these treaties with nations. It was lawful to make treaties. It's perfectly lawful to make treaties. But in times of crises, think about Ahaz. The political turmoil, the chaos that was on his gates. What does Isaiah say to him? Be still. Trust in the Lord your God. And he will deliver you. What does Ahaz say? Nope, now's the time to make a treaty. I don't want to wait on the Lord. I've got Syria and Israel banging down my gates. I got an army that's not going to be able to beat them. So I'll call Assyria. <laughs> Lawful to make treaties. Sinful to trust in lawful means. It's a very subtle deception that assails our heart, isn't it? To avail ourselves of man is one thing. To trust ourselves to man is another altogether. To avail ourselves of helps is good and right, but to trust in them is sin. Consider David. David killed tens of thousands. David was king over the host of Israel. Victory upon victory attended him. The Lord had trained his hands for war. He had surrounded himself with a host of exceptional warriors, a veritable army of Achilles. -y 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 -y. I don't know how to make Achilles plural. Skill, armies, weapons, all lawful for the king of Israel at that time. All means the Lord used to grant David great renown. And what happened? David shifted his trust ever so slightly. Take a census. Mark my vast military might, which is the real source of my power, my success. He had forgotten that it wasn't weapons which killed Goliath. They were of no avail. It was the Lord who had slayed the giant using a child who had no use for weapons. It's a subtle shift. Do you see it? 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 I'm going to need a nod. It's subtle. It's subtle, but we're all vulnerable to it. The Lord uses means to give us nearly all his gifts. So we are perennially vulnerable to shifting our trust ever so slightly from the Lord to the means. From God the provider to those instruments and secondary causes that he uses to bring about his gifts. We receive food each day for nourishment and strength. But we're called to trust the Lord to make us strong. Such that if he removes our bread for a time, we've not lost the true source of our strength. Wasn't that the lesson that Daniel learned? Take away the fat portion. Well, how are we going to thrive? Because your portion is the Lord. Give the lesser portion from the hand of the Lord and you'll thrive. Because he is the source of our confidence. We've been given our jobs to provide for our families. But we're called to trust that the Lord is the one who ultimately gives us these basic things that we need to sustain our mortal life. 
such that if our job is lost for a time, we've not lost the true provider. We can do this in spiritual ways, can't we? We're a means of grace, church. Meaning we devote ourselves to the faithful discharge of the word of God and the sacraments and the faithful attendance upon the word of God and the sacraments. But strictly speaking, we do not trust the means of grace. We trust the one to whom the means of grace point us. The one who draws near through the means of grace by the wonderful working of the Holy Spirit. It's subtle, but it's pervasive. We're relentlessly vulnerable to displace our trust from the true and living God, even to lawful means that he puts at our disposal for the obtaining of good gifts. The only rightful object of trust the only one who will never fail is our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the refuge that he has opened for us, the stronghold that he has opened for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can lament our tendency to trust in means. Seasons of anxiety and great destabilization in the face of unemployment. How many sleepless nights have God's people spent worrying over whether or not that next job was going to come? The provider's not going to leave you or forsake you. How much anxiety has there been over threat of famine, broken supply chains? <laughs> we serve the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. This is what Christ taught. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies. He knows. He, he sustained his people through famine before. Look, it's, it's all right here. <laughs> They've gone through it. They survived not because they found bread in Egypt. They survived because they belonged to the true and living God. The first commandment forbids all consorting with and hearkening unto the devil. Leviticus 26, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Interestingly, Paul lists sorcery among the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.19. The works of the flesh, witchcraft, sorcery. I think there's a temptation to think all such things are nonsense. Isn't there? That would be a mistake. The godly minister in Charles Williams' War in Heaven. Have you read this novel, Charles Williams' War in Heaven? If you haven't seen Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, I don't even know why I tried with this one, quite frankly. <laughs> the godly minister in War in Heaven puts it well. A skeptic comes to this godly minister and asks him if the rumored occult practices of a neighbor aren't nonsense. He says, it's nonsense, isn't it? And the godly minister replies, of course it's nonsense. But just because it's nonsense doesn't mean it's not real. There's an increasing interest in all things spiritual right now. Have you noticed this? 
People are very interested in spiritual experiences. It seems like the cultural landscape is ripe for the darkest version of those spiritual experiences to start exploding. We've been steeped in this materialist myth for quite some time. The materialist myth, right? If, if you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't weigh it, it's not real. People are spiritual creatures that's not going to satisfy them. They're going to reject that. They're going to seek out spiritual experiences because they are spiritual creatures. So one tributary into this landscape is a disenchantment with this materialist myth. It just doesn't ring true. But the other dreadful tributary is this overt rejection and repugnance at Orthodox Christianity. <laughs> you see how these two things converging at the same moment are a recipe for disaster? Man is craving spiritual experiences, but in this moment, he finds repugnant the one safe spiritual experience that there is. Namely, our God in Christ, facilitated by the Holy Spirit. You reject that, but you're seeking out spiritual experiences, you're going to have exactly what we have right now. R renewed interest in New Age practices. Like, it's, that's pagan. That's what the pagans were doing. They were like communing with the trees. Not in like a Narnian sense. <laughs> in the darkest sense of that. There's an increase of interest in all things spiritual, but spiritual things are dangerous things. Indeed, some of the most dangerous things. The first commandment explicitly forbids all consulting with the devil and spirits. The point is worth making, not because I'm afraid that you're consulting spirits, but to raise discernment, to see that these things are creeping into cultural practices presenting themselves as innocuous. But it's really just the age-old penchant for illicit spiritual experiences writ large. We would be disadvantaged if we thought that this was just made-up nonsense. But we'd also be disadvantaged if we did not recall that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated in the heavenly places to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted, such that in a war that is not against flesh and blood, we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And it is a strength of which we are in desperate need, because more humbling than our lack of discernment with reference to dark spiritual practices is the frequency with which we hearken unto the devil's suggestions. <laughs> And that's the fourth and final observation. Acts 5.3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds from the land? Do you remember this story? This is an episode in the early life of the church. The church entered into this season of sweetness, joy at the salvation that had dawned. And people were selling their possessions and giving freely of the things of this world to support the needs of the whole body. And one couple does this, but in a treacherous sort of way, in a deceitful sort of way, such that they make everyone think that they're really doing more than they're actually doing. 
lying not just to the people, but ultimately to God. Now, likely you don't consort with devils in occult occult practices, but sadly, we do often yield to his temptations. That's the case that Peter puts on display here. Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, their sin wasn't withholding a portion. Peter makes that plain. He says it was yours. (laughs) It was yours before you sold it. The proceeds were yours after you sold it. That wasn't the sin. What was the sin? Hypocrisy. I want other people to think I'm better than I really am. I want other people to believe a certain version of myself that I'm projecting, curating, cultivating, perhaps on social media. Not Ananias, but us. It's doubly humbling for us. It's humbling in the first way because it sees that the devil is active in very mundane ways. That's most of his work. When we think of devilry or this war against the devils, we usually think in terms of witchcraft and sorcery. Again, the occult is real. These pagan spiritual practices are real. But most of his activity is spun in the humdrum of daily life. Working on the husband to view his wife and children as a nuisance. Get him to rise up in cruelty towards them. Working on the wife to constantly be belittling the husband who has no shortage of faults, I assure you, as a husband. Working on employees to exploit their employer by not yielding an honest day's work. Working on employers to exploit their employees by minimizing their wages and not rendering a fair salary. Churches by getting people to rise up in pride and seek out the purity of the church by tearing it to the ground. And he laughs and laughs and laughs because we succumb often. Don't we? Don't we? It's doubly humbling for that very reason. Not only is it humbling because he accosts us in these ways relentlessly, but because we succumb to them so frequently. We baptize these tendencies by just saying everybody does it. Everybody shoots these cruel words towards each other. Everybody tears down their wife. Everybody belittles their husband. Everybody hardens their hearts towards one another in the church. And we justify it. And he laughs, and he laughs, and he laughs. It's a violation of the first commandment to succumb to the mundane, humdrum temptations of the devil to get you to baptize your worst tendencies of the flesh as just what everybody does. All our double standards, all our hypocrisy, where does it come from? Sin stirred up by the father of lies. All of our cruelty, all of our contempt towards one another, all of our callousness towards one another, where does it come from? Sin stirred up by the one who is a murderer from the beginning. 
All the chaos that ensues in the household of God as people rise up in pride. Where does it come from? The one who is proud from the beginning, seizing upon tiny proud hearts such that households are torn down by dragons. How frequently does he get a foothold in our hearts? You shall have no other gods before me. Is there room to ache a little bit? Is there room to hang our heads in mourning just a little bit? How dreadful our condition would be were we left to ourselves. Is it not so? What sort of households would erupt? What sort of churches would there be? But take heart. We're not left to ourselves. Take heart. For even if he wounds with conviction, he does so only to heal with the balm of the gospel. For those he convicts, he assures of his love, his forgiveness, the boundlessness of grace and mercy opened in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't shrink back from marking our tendencies to use sinful means, to trust in good means, sinful tendency to heed the devil's promptings. Grieve those tendencies. And take those tendencies and those actions and you lay them at the feet of Christ. You take them and you flee to the one whose blood cleanses sin. The one in whom there is forgiveness and life and hope. Hope that we are not hopelessly tethered to such dark practices. For his blood cleanses from sin's guilt and power. That the one who is the light shines into these dark corners of our hearts, not to lead us into despair, but to cleanse to make aware should we cling to him and walk by not dark spirits, but the spirit of life who leads us in putting to death these deeds of the flesh, whatever they are, so that we may live. Rejoice that he has ransomed you from slavery unto these sins, such that there is hope. And that he grants light, not to terrify you, but to bring you life. And we can rejoice that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who walked in this way perfectly. Walking the path of righteousness and receiving from his Father the reward of all authority. Withstanding the full onslaught of the devil's temptation. In the face of unspeakable anguish, agony, and pain, such that he alone knows their full force, and such that he alone is able to help in our temptations. That's the very thing he assures us of, that he ever lives to make intercession for us, ready to help in time of need.
And we know that he is able, for he has withstood it, and he stands with all authority and power. And he says, come to me, sinner. I will never cast you aside. Let's pray. Humble us in the light of your word, O Lord. Humble us in the light of our King. Teach us to cling to him, to flee to him. Forgive us, Father, we're so prone to overlook the many permutations of sin in our life. Humble us, Lord, and then draw near to us. And whisper in our love, in our ears, the extent of your love. And build us up. For your name's sake, for we ask in Christ, amen.